The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. While you're turning there, I have a couple of announcements. Um, The big one is that next Wednesday, we will not be meeting. In place of our meeting, we're going to meet on Monday night right here at 7 p.m., and we're going to be celebrating the Feast of Atonement. So how many of you were here on Saturday night for the Feast of Trumpets? That was amazing. God showed up and he showed off. It was incredible. And uh, so I love the way our church has embraced the, the feasts of the Lord, God's divine timetable. And next Monday, we will be celebrating, participating in the Day of Atonement. So no service next Wednesday. However, the following Wednesday, so I think that's October 7th, uh, we're going to be hosting a worship night slash baptism here. So praise the Lord for that. That's October 7th. If you have never publicly professed your way and identified yourself with Christ in baptism, then this is for you. It's an opportunity for you to say, you know what? In front of the whole world, I want to acknowledge that when Jesus died on the cross, he did it for me, and I died with him, and then I was raised to new life with him. And so as you go under the water, it's a picture of being buried with Christ. And then as you come up, it's a picture of becoming a new creation in Christ. So we want to celebrate with you, uh, and that's in two Wednesdays, October 7th, and we'll also be having a worship night. But tonight, tonight, We are in Joshua chapter 3. The title of my sermon is Crossing Over. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, said this. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 11. He said, the things that happened to them. So, the things that happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He said this. Those things are meant to serve as examples to those of us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. I love that phrase. Paul, in other words, is telling that church and us by extension that there are lessons to be gleaned from the Old Testament saints. Knowing that to be the case, then what is the lesson from the book of Joshua? We know that historically speaking, The book of Joshua chronicles the events that transpired after the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, how God brought them into the promised land and it describes their conquest of the land of Canaan. But for us, living 2,000 years or more than 2,000 years removed from those events, what does it speak? And I believe the book is meant to paint a picture for us Again, of the kind of life that God wants to bring us into, the kind of life that Jesus died and then rose again to give to us. You see, for Israel, it was about conquering the land and driving out her enemies. For us, it's about experiencing this abundant, victorious life and driving back our enemies, our spiritual enemies. For them, it was about possessing a land flowing with milk and honey. For us, it's about possessing our inheritance, like Ephesians talks about. It's about experiencing a life filled with the spirit and joy. 
So that serving as a primer, let's go ahead and jump into our text here. We're just going to read a couple of verses and then talk about them. Start with me there in verse one. It says, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from, and again, I'm going to let Sean, I think pronounce this word shitam. So we'll just go with that. And went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. So we have the Israelites camping along the banks of the Jordan River. Now jump down to verse 15 because it tells us something significant about the timing. It says, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. So this sets the stage for where we're going with things this evening. We find the Israelites camped here along the banks of the Jordan River. Now, most of you will recognize the Jordan as the most prominent river. It shows up all throughout scripture. It's not because it's the prettiest. It's not because it's the widest or the deepest, nor is it the longest river in the world. Yet the Jordan River holds a special place in the scriptures, and it's garnered much affection. Songs have been written about it over the generations, and, and here's why. Its significance lies in where it's situated, geographically speaking. You see, the, the Jordan River lied just on the outer edge of the land that God promised to give to his people. And so it served as a sort of boundary marker between where the people of God had come from and what they were about ready to move into. Now, for much of the year, the Jordan isn't much of an obstacle. Um, it, it, it's more like a, a tranquil little creek in some places than what we might consider to be a river. It's easily crossable. However, as we read in verse 15, when the Israelites showed up, it was during the harvest time, during the spring, and, and when the snows on Mount Hermon would melt during the spring, the runoff would fill the creeks and streams that fed into the, Jormer, uh, into the Jordan, and it would turn the gentle Jordan into a raging river that overflowed its banks. So for a while, during the dry season, the Jordan, which might only be a couple of feet deep and a, a few dozen feet wide, easily crossable, well, during the springtime, during that melting runoff, it might spread to over a mile wide and over 17 feet deep. Thus, we see the Israelites found themselves at an impasse. Right? They had made it this far in their journey, but it didn't appear as though they were going to make it any further. And the frustrating thing about that is they were so close, right? Like they could just, they could almost taste it. After 40 long years of wandering through the wilderness, God had finally brought them to the brink. The time had come, and they could look across the Jordan, and they could see where they were supposed to be, what God had promised to give them, but they couldn't quite get there. They could almost reach out and touch it, but it remained just out of reach. Perhaps there were a handful of those in the camp that could have made the swim and ventured across the depths of the Jordan and fought the currents. But let's remember that Israel numbered two million at this point. And that number included the elderly and infants and animals and cargo and tents. The point is there was no way around it. There wasn't enough time or resources to build a bridge over it. They were flat out stuck. And here's where we can begin to make application to our own story. I wonder if you've ever been or ever found yourself in a similar state? 
Have you ever felt like the life that you long for, the life that you were meant for, that it lied just beyond your reach? Or how about this? Have you ever felt like you were camped out on the wrong side of your personal destiny? I know what that feels like. And it's an incredibly frustrating place to find yourself when you can visualize, visualize the life that you want to live, but you can't quite get to it. And that's where Israel is at this moment, right? They've been delivered from bondage and slavery and Egypt and Pharaoh, but they hadn't yet crossed over into the land that flowed with milk and honey. They were kind of in an in-between place. They could see what they wanted, but they couldn't reach it. And the only thing standing in their way was the Jordan. And here's the application. Between you and the blessings that God wants to bring you into, there will always be some kind of barrier. For them, it was a physical barrier. It was a river. But for us, it's probably going to be an emotional barrier or a spiritual barrier. For them, it was the Jordan. But for us, it might be shame. It might be fear. It might be unbelief or an addiction or a bad relationship or your past. Whatever it is, there will always be a barrier between you and the life that God intends for you and longs for you to step into. And what I came here tonight to tell you is that God wants to make a way for you to cross over to the other side so you can start living the life that God dreamed up for you. You see, whatever problem you're facing, whatever obstacle is in front of you, God is just using it to set the stage for an even bigger miracle. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now, while I've got you thinking about that, here's something else to think about. Why were the Israelites stuck on the wrong side of the promise? Why were they stuck on this side of the Jordan in this position? Now, you could say that it was Joshua's fault. After all, he was the one that was in charge, and he's the one who poorly planned things and led them to the banks of the Jordan in the springtime when any fool should know that the Jordan overruns its banks. But if we step back and think about it and peel back another layer, we discover that God is the one leading the Israelites. God is the one leading Joshua. So God is in fact responsible for leading them to the Jordan. Now he could have done it at any point, right? He could have brought them there at a more convenient time when it would have been easily crossable. But instead he chose to wait until it was springtime when the Jordan overflowed its banks. You see, what I'm getting at is there's no other way to see it. God had purposefully led his people into an impossible situation. So why would he do something like that? And I think he did it for the same reason that he does it with us. You see, the reason that God will place you in impossible situations is so that he can build your faith and show off his faithfulness. You see, here's what God knew that they didn't know. God knew that they were about to cross over into new land and new territory, and they were going to face all kinds of battles on the other side. And the key to victory in every one of those battles was going to be trust and faith in him. And so that was the key. And so because he knew that, before they even got started, God decided to do something to build up their faith. And God does the same thing with us. You guys know this faith, it's like a muscle. It doesn't grow on its own. It has to be developed. You want a six pack, you gotta do some crunches. 
You want biceps, you got to get down and do some burpees. You want faith, you got to pass through some trials because that is the ground in which the, the seed of faith sprouts and grows in our lives. God uses trials to build faith. It's always the way God has worked. If you think about it, that's what he had done with the previous generation, right? After they had been released and Moses had told Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh finally said, fine, you can go, leave. And what did God do? He led them right to the banks of the Red Sea, where they were hemmed in on either side by mountains, the Red Sea before them. It was a strategically terrible place to camp, but that's where God led his people. And then, of course, we know the story. Pharaoh had a change of heart. He sent out all of his chariots after the Israelites, and they thought, oh, no, we're doomed. We're trapped. This was a setup. And God right. says, you know what? You're right. This is a setup. I'm setting you up to see my glory. And he had Moses stretch out his staff, and the waters part, and the people of God pass through on dry ground, and then the seas swallow up the army that was chasing them. Now, that was an incredible moment. It's a powerful miracle, something that had no doubt etched itself in the minds and in the hearts of every Jew who experienced that miracle. But let's think about it. That had happened a long time ago at this point. In fact, none of the Jews who saw the Red Sea part were still alive. All of them had passed away. And although they had heard the stories over and over and over again, they had counted them, recounted them and rehearsed them and retold them to this generation, they hadn't experienced them for themselves. And, and you need to know something. No generation can live off the faith of a previous generation. God doesn't have any grandchildren, and we can't rely on a second-hand faith. We need first-hand faith. So that's why God sets up the Israelites. He brings them to the Jordan when he did, because he's not setting them up to fail. He's setting the stage for a miracle. And that's what impossible situations are. They're just divine setups for incredible opportunities for God to show off. You see, we all want miracles in our life. Who doesn't want to see miracles? We all want miracles. I want to see more miracles. But be careful what you ask for, because did you know that the backdrop for every miracle that you will read about in the Bible was an impossible situation, something where there seemed like to be no way out, and we forget that sometimes, but you can't have one without the other. That's why God brings us to impossible places. He's setting us up. From a human standpoint, your situation tonight might have the word impossible stamped all over it. But God wants you to know that impossibility is just his opportunity. And he does his best work in impossible situations. Now, we know that. We know where this story is going. We have the, um, the blessing of hindsight. But let's not forget, at the time, none of the Israelites knew what God had in mind or in store for them. All they knew was that they were stuck. And we're told that they were camped there for three days. And so for three long days and three long nights, they sat there while the passing torrent continued to erode all of their confidence. And the waiting just served to pound reality into the heart and mind of every Israelite. There was no way they were going to be able to cross this river. The life they wanted, it was just over there. But they were stuck over here. So what did God tell them to do? I, I think we're going to gain some insight from this. Look at verse 2. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp 
and gave orders to the people. And this is what they told them. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Don't get too close to it. All right, so what are their orders? I love it. Notice how God directs his people to do one thing here. Fix your eyes on the ark and follow it. Wherever it goes, you follow. And that's extremely significant, and here's why. For the previous three days, what had the people been staring at? The river. And the whole time they're watching the river, their faith is depleting. It had driven home the impossibility of the matter. And God knew that. that's why he tells them, redirect your attention and fix your gaze on the ark instead. Actually, I went through this text and counted. The ark of the covenant is mentioned nine times in chapter three. It figures most prominently in this story. We think about the river. It's the crossing of the Jordan. No, no, no. The, the key element in this story is actually the ark. So why did God want them watching the ark so closely? Well, he tells us one reason why in verse four. He says, then you'll know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. Now, that was true for them. They'd never been that way before. They were embarking on new territory, and every step they took was a step into an unknown land. But isn't that true in a broader sense for all of us? I mean, did any of you see 2020 playing out like this? Right? We don't know what tomorrow holds. We, we like to think that we do, but the best that we can do is, is really guess about how tomorrow's going to play out, right? Weathermen, well, it's pretty easy in California, but in other parts of the country, weathermen have it tough, and they try to read the models and predict where the path of the hurricane is going to go. Investors do their best to prognosticate what the stock market is going to do on Wall Street. And then you have pundits who try to predict how things are going to play out in elections. But at the end of the day, none of us really knows. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But God does, right? Because tomorrow is not a destination to which God is traveling. God is outside of time. And so God already lives in tomorrow. He knows everything. There's no surprises for him. What's more, the Bible tells us that he's already thought about you and what he wants you to do. And he has good plans and good works that he's preordained that he wants us to walk in. And so all we have to do is train our eyes on him and follow where he leads. Think about it like this. Nowadays, when you want to go somewhere, what's the first thing you do? You pull your phone out, you put in the uh, address of that location, and then you just follow the little blue line. I love it. It's so simple. But did you know that with the Holy Spirit, God has given us our own personal, internal, spiritual GPS system? And he's like, he, here, listen to what he says, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. He says, your ears, they'll hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, God is so good. He leads us, he directs us, he knows what's best for us. And he knows that whatever gets our attention gets us. That's why over and over and over again, he tells the Israelites, pay attention, Follow the ark. Keep your eyes on the ark. It's not that there's something magical or mystical or mysterious about this essentially chest, this ark, this box overlaid with gold. 
It's what it represented, right? Think about what's in the ark. You have three items in the ark. You have, well, you have the Ten Commandments, right? And it speaks to us of God's heart for his people. This is the way that you're going to experience a life of flourishing by, by following my law. So it's his heart. You also have a pot of manna. That's what God miraculously fed the Israelites with for 40 years. It's a picture, a symbol of his faithfulness to them. And then what's the third thing you have? Aaron's rod, this, this stick that miraculously blossomed and budded with olives and leaves after it had been removed from the branch. Incredible picture of God's miraculous power. So you have a picture of his heart, a picture of his provision, a picture of his power. All of these things are what God wants us focusing on, but ultimately the, the ark spoke of something far more significant than even those things. You see, on the top of the ark was a gold plate, and it was a, a place known as the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat were these two golden cherubim, and their wings would cover over and touch. And, and God said, the mercy seat is where I will meet with my people. This is the place where I've chosen to meet with you. Both Psalm 80 verse 1 and 99 verse 1 describe as being enthroned above the cherubim. God said, I'll show up right there. So in telling the people, keep your eyes on the ark, what he was really telling them was, keep your eyes on me. The ark is just a physical reminder of the Lord's power, faithfulness, and abiding presence. The real key is keeping their eyes on Jesus, on the Lord. Perhaps you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, that's great and good and dandy for them. They could fix their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant, and it served as a physical representation of God's provision, power, and faithfulness, and presence. But what about us? We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. It kind of would be cool, wouldn't it? I mean, we don't know where the Ark is anymore. It's been lost. The only one who knows where it is is God, right? Maybe Indiana Jones. <laughs> but what about us? What are we supposed to look at? Come on, you guys are Bible students. You know where I'm going with this. Hebrews chapter 12, what does it say? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Doing what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, he says, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do we avoid burnout as believers? Here's the solution, the prescription. Consider him so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I love these verses. And how do we do that? By faith. We can't see him with our physical eyes, but through eyes of faith, we can still gaze upon Jesus. I was reading about doves this past week and, and learned something really cool. I don't know what inspired me. I must have heard this in a sermon 20 years ago or something, but did you know that doves are unique, somewhat unique and among God's creation and they don't have peripheral vision like you and I do? So whenever we're standing and looking at something, I can look here, but I can also see about 45 degrees out in peripheral vision. And most animals have this ability as well. It's what protects them from impending danger. But doves weren't given this. Instead, they have to continually focus only on one thing. And I just love that picture, that we would just be those who have 
dove's eyes for the Lord, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's how we ought to be with the Lord. They fixed their eyes on the ark. We fix our eyes on the Lord. They fixed their eyes on the commandments. We fix our eyes on the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us that we could never keep on our own. They fix their eyes on the manna that provided for them in the wilderness. We fix our eyes on the bread that came down from heaven, the bread of life. They fix their eyes on the Aaron's rod that budded. We look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which lets us know that we will live and reign with him for all of eternity. They have the mercy seat. They have the mercy seat. But we have something even better. We have direct access to his throne of grace. And note the difference. Moses is careful, or rather the Israelite uh, Joshua and his leaders were careful to say, keep a distance, don't get too close to the ark. Not anymore. We're encouraged to approach the throne with boldness where we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So this is the key, friends. As we move into an uncertain and unknown future, keep your eyes on the Lord. There's an old Corey Ten Boom quote that, that puts it like this, I love it. It says, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you, if you look within, you'll get depressed. Amen. But if you look at him, you'll be at rest. That will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on these. When I look at the world and the mess that it is, my anxiety levels rise, my blood pressure soars, but when I fix my eyes on Jesus and realize he's got the whole world in his hands, that I read the end of the book and I know we win, it just it has a way of like calming me. Amen. So that's the first key, crossing over into the life God wants you to live. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Now in verses five, we get to see the second step. Step one, watch the Lord closely. Now look at verse five. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. For the Lord will do amazing things among you tomorrow. Yes. Step one, watch the Lord closely. Step two, consecrate yourselves wholly. Now the word for consecrate means to prepare, to dedicate, to separate, or to set apart. Basically the word involves two things. First, it involves repentance of any known sin in your life. So it's getting rid of the, the yucky. And the second part of it, it means positioning yourself in such a way that you're living with an expectancy as you wait on the Lord to move. The person in the Old Testament who wanted to consecrate themselves to God would go to great lengths in order to do so. They would, they would stop combing their hair in the mornings and brushing their teeth and shaving and, and, and changing their clothes. They would just wear the same thing every day. And you say, why would they do something like that? Well, it gets better. They would rearrange their whole schedule. They would just dedicate themselves for a time to doing one thing and one thing only, prioritizing seeking God above else so that they wouldn't miss him. So that's what it looked like for them, but maybe that's not an option for you. I'm thankful for one that you guys did brush your teeth this morning. So what does it look like practically for us to consecrate ourselves to God? I, I think quite simply, it means living wholly surrendered lives. It means living with an expectant attitude. It means putting God first. It means laying down our lives as living sacrifices. You see, God longs to, desires to, and wants to do amazing things among us. I truly believe that. But before we can do that, we've got to be consecrated to him, 
wholly surrendered, not holding anything back. That's what it takes. I'll put it like this. If you want to see God do amazing things in your life tomorrow, then it starts with consecrating yourself unto him today. It was God's word to Israel, and it's his word to us. Okay, so these are the keys. You're going to cross the uncrossable. If you're going to step over past that barrier into the life that God intends and desires for you to experience, number one, keep your eyes on the Lord. Watch the Lord closely. Number two, consecrate yourselves wholly. And then there's one more thing that we must do. Look at verse eight. He went on to say this, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Step one, watch the Lord closely. Step two, consecrate yourself wholly. And here's the third step. Step out and stand still. This is the third and final thing that God tells his people to do. Watch himself or watch, watch the Lord. Consecrate themselves. And then having done that, step out in faith. This is the activation part of things. And it's so key and so important. God would do his part but not until they did theirs. He promised to do the impossible thing, but he first asked them to do the obedient thing. They could have argued, but it makes more sense. These are brand new moccasins. I don't want to get them wet. Couldn't you just part the water like you did for the Red Sea? And then once it's dry, we'll walk across. I mean, that just seems to make more sense. And that would be true. But if God had done it like that, it wouldn't have required any faith on their part. That's why God asked them to step out into the water. And it works the same way for us. Listen, focusing on the Lord, it's essential. And consecrating ourselves unto the Lord is vital. But we'll never experience the miraculous if we don't move our feet and step out in faith. So that's what they did. Let's finish the story in verse 14 through 17. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now, again, the Jordan, it's at flood stage all during harvest. Yet, look at this, verse 15, part B. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Man, let me just help you visualize this scene through sanctified imagination. Standing there with the Israelites along the banks of the Jordan River, this thundering, raging torrent of water, you would have seen armed soldiers with, with spears and shields in their hand. You would have seen wide-eyed mothers holding crying babies and giggling toddlers running around and, and dads and teenagers all standing together. And then off in the distance, a little ways away from everybody, you would have seen all of those people's eyes trained on one thing, on the Ark of the Covenant and on the priests who carried the Ark on long poles between their shoulders. And I can imagine the scene there as the priest stepped down the bank and began to wade into the shallows of the water. 
Now remember, the water was swift, it was dangerous, and perhaps those priests had to fight back the thoughts in their own mind that were telling them, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. Everyone's going to laugh at you. It's not going to work. You could drown. But they didn't stop, did they? The priests kept moving. When the water got up to their knees, their thoughts were screaming at them. This is ridiculous. Turn back now. But they didn't turn back. They just kept walking. And as soon, as soon, as soon as the priests who carried the Ark of the Jordan touched the water with their feet, the water stopped flowing. Notice, when did the miracle happen? Once the step of faith had been taken. But it still took some time. It says it happened a ways up the river, 19 miles to be exact, 19 miles away. Now, you can imagine how long it takes 19 miles worth of water to flow down. And so the people are all watching there in hushed silence. And they're saying, is anything happening? Is the water going down? And after a little bit of time, someone said, I think I see the waters receding just a little bit. And they kept going down and down and down. And then the people began to rejoice. And then the water was gone. And then the people crossed over. The riverbed was dry. God had done the impossible. He turned a no way into a highway. Of course he did. That's what our God does. He's the miracle working God. He's the God of the impossible. But none of it happened until they first got their feet wet. It's important. And for those of us who desire to cross over into new boundaries, this amazing life of faith that God's prepared for us, it's going to take radical obedience, steps of faith, a willingness on our part to look like a fool, to step out into the water and believe God for big things, because God honors big faith, and big faith honors God. See, I believe the Lord wants to bring many of us into new dimensions of his love and his grace tonight. He wants to help you cross over. He wants to help you claim new territory. There are new dreams that God wants to give you, new visions that he wants to give you, new roads of opportunity that he wants to lead you down, and new possibilities of horizons that he wants you to chase. But if we're going to cross over and experience what God has for us, that means we're going to have to leave some old things behind, because once you cross over, there's no going back. And it means we're going to have to step out in faith and do things that we've never done before. Because if you want to see God do things that he's never done before in your life, then that means you're going to have to do things you've never done before. And if you want to see God do the impossible, then you've got to step out in bold obedience. Do the faithful thing. Get your feet wet. Tonight could be your night. The rivers could part. It's time to cross over. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. We believe you're a miracle-working God. Yes, we, do. we believe you're here, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes. Jesus, we thank you for the cross and what that means to us. You crossed over into death, taking our place, and then you rose from the dead so that the blade of death doesn't fall on us because it fell on you. We've been gifted your righteousness, and now we can walk with holy boldness into a life characterized by joy and peace and love and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness. We can abound in the fruit of the Spirit. We can experience the miraculous. We can walk in victory. We don't have to be 
held back or bound up by the things of our past, Jesus, because you have already secured the victory. And if our situation right now feels impossible, that's only because you're waiting to to show up and show off for us, Jesus. So would you become bigger tonight than any problem that we're facing? Would you show yourself strong on behalf of those of us whose hearts are directed towards you, Lord? Would you, Jesus, come and fill this place with a a holy anticipation that you are good, that you are here, that you are love, that you are light, that you are our Father? Would you save those who are lost and know it, Lord, as they repent of their sins? Would you bring back the prodigal sons and the prodigal daughters because you're the faithful shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after that one lost sheep? Would you restore us? Would you strengthen us? Would you embolden us so that like David and his mighty men, we might put to flight a thousand because we serve a God that is bigger than any barrier. May giants fall before us, God, as we, as we step out in faith, as we Hear your voice as we respond in obedience, as we don't hold back, Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.